Hello and welcome back to Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds, the podcast where each episode we take a chapter of H.G. Wells' seminal classic novel, The War of the Worlds, stick it in a blender, mix in some deep dive research and some comedy songs, we turn on the on switch and we enjoy a lovely smoothie of audio podcast goodness. Ah, so refreshing. Uh, what are we on this week? Chapter 10, In the Storm. Things are getting pretty intense. The fighting began last chapter. Our narrator, he had a he had a cold bath, still not learned to ride a bike, took a dog cart for two quid, got his wife into a safe area of Leatherhead, and now he's on his way to return the cart to the landlord. But will he do it? Is it sensible considering that Martians are literally swarming the place? Well, we're gonna find out. But before we do, hey, let me ask you something. You're enjoying the podcast. That's obvious. Why would you have listened to chapter 10 if you weren't? That's a lot of rage to be carrying around in your life. You've given up hours of your life in order to to spite yourself. And I, I would worry about it. But if you're spiting yourself or you're treating yourself, why not treat the show too? Give us a little review. Give us a, a like, a follow on Twitter, at Eddie Hurst, on Facebook, on Instagram, and rate and review the podcast because the more ratings and the more reviews that we have, uh, specifically on Apple Podcasts, but wherever you can get your podcast from, the better it is for getting more people to come along to it. Give us a, give us a like, give us a review, and get ready because here we go. Enjoy the show. Chapter 10, In the Storm. Leatherhead is about 12 miles from Maybury Hill. The scent of hay was in the air through the lush meadows beyond Pyreford, and the hedges on either side were sweet and gay with multitudes of dog roses. The heavy firing that had broken out whilst we were driving down Maybury Hill ceased as abruptly as it began, leaving the evening very peaceful and still. We got to Leatherhead without misadventure about nine o'clock, and the horse had an hour's rest while I took supper with my cousins and commended my wife to their care. Hey guys, uh, just to let you know that we, we will have uh, Bexy is appearing in this chapter, but she doesn't have any, any lines. So if you just imagine that she, she was here for the recording of it, but she, she was just sort of looking a bit bored. My wife was curiously silent throughout the drive. Oh, come on, love. What's the matter? You're not upset about those aliens still coming and blowing up our home and attacking everything? Oh, wait, yeah, you are. That makes sense. And seemed oppressed with forebodings of evil. I talked to her reassuringly, pointing out that the Martians were tied to the pit by sheer heaviness, and at the utmost could but crawl a little out of it. But she answered only in monosyllables. Bit rude. Had it not been for my promise to the innkeeper, she would, I think, have urged me to stay in Leatherhead that night. Would that I had. Her face, I remember, was very white as we parted. For my own part, I had been feverishly excited all day. Something very like the war fever that occasionally runs through a civilized community had got into my blood. And in my heart, I was not so very sorry that I had to return to Maybury that night. Why, let me get them Martians. I'm gonna bop them on the noses or their proboscis or whatever they got. One of them stupid eyes. Let me get them. I was even afraid that that last fusillade I had heard might mean the extermination of our invaders from Mars. I can best express my state of mind by saying that I wanted to be in at the death. I mean, this sounds perfectly reasonable to me. Why wouldn't you want to be there for the death? You know, he's probably got a ticket for the front row of Mark Twain's steamboat war tour. It was nearly 11 when I started to return. The night was unexpectedly dark. To me, 
walking out of the lighted passage of my cousin's house. It seemed indeed black, and it was as hot and close as the day. Overhead, the clouds were driving fast, albeit not a breath stirred in the shrubs around us. Metaphor alert! Metaphor alert! A sense of foreboding. Nature is changing around him, although he can't experience it right now. Could it be something about to happen? You'll have to wait just a few minutes. Metaphor alert! My cousin's man lit both the lamps. Happily, I knew the road intimately. My wife stood in the light of the doorway and watched me until I jumped up into the dog cart. Then abruptly she turned and went in, leaving my cousin side by side wishing me good hat. Hey, it's me, the explaining lad. I'm a teenager now and I've got angst again. Oh, I also gotta pause my skateboard game of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's really good and I'm sure they'll never remake it for you old fuddy-duddies. What's hap? So hap, it's not like a hap. Like hap is another word for look. Why didn't they just say look? I don't know, maybe it's slang? Maybe something you oldies wouldn't understand? Whatever, I'm out of here. I was a little depressed at first with the contagion of my wife's fears, but very soon my thoughts reverted to the Martians. Yeah, I mean, sure, I'm sad my wife's upset, but goddamn those sexy Martians! I was absolutely in the dark as to the course of the evening's fighting. I did not know even the circumstances that have precipitated the conflict. As I came through Ockham, for that was the way I returned, and not through Send and Old Woking, I saw along the western horizon a blood-red glow, which as I drew nearer, crept slowly up the sky. The driving clouds of the gathering thunderstorm mingled there with masses of black and red smoke. Metaphor alert! Metaphor, I, I mean, I, I'm gonna be I, I think it's pretty clear what's going on here. You probably don't need the alert for the metaphor, you know, it's thunderstorms, it's stuff. Uh, in, in many ways, actually, it might be that the thunderstorm's something to do with um, what, what, what you'll see in the, next, in the next bit. So, I mean, just be aware that it's happening, but uh, also, I, I, just, I mean, I suppose stay alert, you know, because staying alert sort of means like being aware without actually having to do anything. So, yeah, well, yeah, we'll count, count this as a metaphor alert. Metaphor alert! Ripley Street was deserted, and except for a lighted window or so, the village showed not a sign of life. But I narrowly escaped an accident at the corner of the road to Pyford, where a knot of people stood with their backs to me. I think the narrator is, is a little bit accident prone. He's about the only person I know who could manage to bump into somebody who is standing perfectly still. They said nothing to me as I passed. Rude! I do not know what they knew of the things happening beyond the hill. Nor do I know if the silent houses I passed on my way were sleeping securely. Nor do I know if the silent houses I passed on my way were sleeping securely, or deserted and empty, or harassed and watching against the terror of the night. Yeah, if only there were a way this narrator, uh, who has a background in writing and, and, and surely interviewing people, could, could find out what was going on. If only, if only he was available to, to very lightly knock on a door and politely inquire. We'll never know. From Ripley until I came through Pyreford, I was in the Valley of the Way. I mean, I know it isn't, but Valley of the Way is a great, like, fantasy name, isn't it? Ah, we find ourselves in the Valley of the Way, surrounded by the mountains of the Kurds. Uh, I mean, I mean, like, Kurds and Way, you know, like the milk, not, not the Kurdistani fighters. And the red glare was hidden from me. As I ascended the little hill beyond Pyreford Church, the glare came into view again. 
and the trees about me shivered with the first intimation of the storm that was upon me. Then I heard midnight pealing out from the Pyreford church behind me. And then came the silhouette of Maybury Hill, with its treetops and roofs black and sharp against the red. Even as I beheld this, a lurid green glare lit the road about me and showed the distant woods towards Adelstone. If there's one takeaway from this book, it is that H.G. Wells really put his time into researching the area. Like, I've got Google Maps on in front of me, and you can actually follow where he's going to, so you can follow the way from Sendon Woken down, and then you can see Edelstone and everything. Uh, he's really checked out. I'd say that the, the thing he has researched more than anything in this story is the local geography of the area he's writing about. And you know what? You can't fault a man for that. He knew his way around an OS map. I felt a tug at the reins. I saw that the driving clouds had been pierced, as it were, by a thread of green fire, suddenly lighting their confusion and falling into the field to my left. It was the third falling star! Close on its apparition, and blindingly violet by contrast, danced out the first lightning of the gathering storm, and the thunder burst like a rocket overhead. The horse took the bit between its teeth and bolted. A moderate incline runs towards the foot of Maybury Hill, and down this we clattered. I mean, it's not just the town names in the general area, the guy knows the rough gradient of the land. Once the lightning had begun, it went on in as rapid a succession of flashes as I had ever seen. The thunderclaps, treading one on the heels of another, and with a strange crackling accompaniment, sounded more like the working of a gigantic electric machine than the usual detonating reverberations. The flickering light was blinding and confusing, and a thin hail smote gustily at my face as I drove down the slope. At first I regarded little but the road before me, and then abruptly my attention was arrested by something that was moving rapidly down the opposite slope of Maybury Hill. At first I took it for the wet roof of a house, but one flash following another showed it to be in a swift rolling movement. It was an elusive vision, a moment of bewildering darkness, and then in a flash like daylight. The red masses of the orphanage, near the crest of the hill, the green tops of the pine trees, and this problematic object came out clear and sharp and bright. I mean, it feels a bit harsh to get the orphanage involved in this. Haven't they, haven't they been through enough already before Martians come attacking? And this thing I saw, how can I describe it? A monstrous tripod. I don't know if you guys are anything like me, but the fact that tripods are in this book right now is very exciting. I mean, yes, it is over halfway through book one of what is uh, what is mostly a man talking about how he's not learning a bike, but we're here! If you've ever seen, heard, or read anything at all to do with the War of the Worlds before, there's a massive chance that the main thing you remember is the fighting machines atop their three-legged stride. Maybe it's the Spielberg... Or the Jeff Wayne. I mean, in this book, it's which sounds. I thought ooh la with ooh la la was the closest to French we'd, we'd get from the Martians, but alu just sounds way more French. Of all of the parts of the War of the World, the tripods are definitely a standout. Get it? Because of the because uh, of the legs, it uh, stand, stands out. Stands out. Oh, get, hello. But hey. What better way to celebrate the introduction of the fighting machines than a rundown of the very best the world has to offer in tripods? 
And of course, there's only one number that's right for the best amount of tripods. You've got it right! The top five tripods! Whether in film, video games, books, or even real life! Whoa. Tripods have had quite the journey, and we're gonna hop in our HG World Certified Time Machine to look at its lasting impact. Number five, the Delft Tripod. It's ancient, it's Greek, it's got three legs. No, it's not man in the evening, it must be a tripod. But this ain't no fighting machine atop a triplet of legs. This is a young girl, an oracle to be precise. The oracle of Delph is maybe more famous than the Delphic Tripod, but you know what they say, under every great foot is a great stool. And what a stool! With three legs rather than the standard four, it provided the greatest balance on uneven ground, making it perfect for a world where they didn't have levelling architecture equipment. If you could imagine such a barbaric past! You know, what they say is true. Science is just magic that works. And what greater magic is there than a steady level on an uneven surface? Fun to wrap out your hat, uh, water to wine, somebody back from the dead. In ancient times, the first three-legged structures were for holding things, whether that's an all-knowing ass or the ceremonial ashes for sacrifice to the gods. If you saw a tripod, you knew it was the business of the gods. The Delft tripod is probably the best known in Greek times, especially in the myth of Heracles, where Hurt goes to the priestess of Delphi like, Hey, Tuts, you got a prophecy for me? And she's like, Not your raggedy ass. And then he flips his lid and tries to steal the tripod so he can sit on it and get the oracle's omen. It becomes a whole thing. Apollo jumps in to try and stop him and Zeus has to break it up. You know, fairly standard Greek stuff. Uh, if you ask me, it sounds a bit tragic, really. <laughs> You've done it, boy! Take the keys to the Lamborghini! Number four, ancient Chinese tripods. But wait! With another tug of the time machine, we're back even further into ancient China. Ooh, such beautiful mountain landscape. Hey, look, it's the Monkey King. Tripods have been found as a part of ancient Chinese culture since the Neolithic period. This is a period of time just after we started making tools from stone and just began domesticating wild animals and farming crops. It's Neo, meaning new, Lithic, meaning stone. So the new Stone Age, a bit like New Coke, only this was actually successful. Now these tripods were known as dings and were often used for sacrificial ceremonies. Some even had four legs. Wait, what, four legs? What the f Number three, surveying tripod. The surveying tripod, introduced in the late 1820s, is now a firm fixture for surveyors and photographers across the land. Get it, the firm fixture, because it's a, it's, a, it's a sturdy structure to balance delicate equipment on. Firm, firm, uh, hello? This was created by Sir Francis Ronalds, easily the second most famous Sir Francis, after Drake. Oh, what about Sir Francis Bacon? Or, or, or Francis Walsingham? Maybe Francis Galton? Wait, wasn't that the super racist guy from episode one? When did he become a knight? All right, he's definitely in the top five Sir Francis. Anyway, as well as creating the tripod, of which his design was subsequently taken by everybody else and reused over and over again, he also designed the electric telegraph, the movie camera, and the Q Observatory. So a pretty prolific inventor. But this isn't about him, damn it. It's about the three hinged legs, and it always has been. Could it be that Wells was inspired by seeing a keen-eyed surveyor taking measurements from a new building, kitted out with the latest stand money could buy? Well, it's either that or, like he said, a milking stool. So, uh, which do you reckon a science teacher was more likely to be in contact with? Scientific equipment or a dairy farm? I mean, 
I'm I am genuinely asking you. I have no idea. Number two, a robot tripod. Now in the year 2017, we're definitely in War of the Worlds inspiration territory. And what better place to look than something literally conceived to answer a question from the book? The question is, how do these damn things move? It's like a sort of wobbling motion. How does that even look with a multi-story tank on legs? And if they're such a smart design, Mr. Martian, sir, then how come none of our good, decent, honest Earth creatures have three legs? It's always an even number of them, you sexy tentacled freaks! According to TVTropes.com, one of the reasons that the fighting machines are given the unusual number of legs is because it helps to further establish the Martians as non-human and not from this Earth. But this cold, hard reasoning wasn't enough to stop Yoichi Masuda and the Osaka University from putting this to the test with their own three-legged robot in 2017. I found an article about this where they tried to get the robot to answer the question why most animals don't have three legs, and they spoke about how their creation makes its own gait. I mean, I, I have no idea what a gait is. Is it something? I think it's something about like the way someone walks, like the steps they take. But as I researched more, that is the sort of answer you can expect from this project. The notable thing, according to an article on the Institute for Electrical and Electronics Engineering, is that even though each leg is moving completely independently of one another, it's stabilizing movement. However, that stabilized movement looks just about like a six-year-old going wild on a spirograph. I mean, look at the video, because honestly, it's just, it's wow, wow. I mean, if the fighting machines landed and moved around like that, I'm, I'm pretty sure we'd be fine. I think would be fine. Oh no! They're attacking from Woking! Uh, I think they're attacking- No, I think- It looks like they're falling over! I, I, I think someone should help them, they don't look alright! Number one. Finally, last but not least, from 1990, we're going to the Amalfi Coast to join Philippe Stark at a delightful lunchtime where inspiration strikes him like a bolt of genius lightning. He's one of the hottest designers in the world, but good God is he controversial. He's a maverick. He'll take a rule book and then he'll put it right back down on the shelf. With so much talent coursing through this man's veins, no kitchen appliance is safe from a redesign, and it was only a matter of time until his gaze fell onto the humble juicer. Oh yes, how on earth could he combine tripod technology with juicing? Well, he did it. They said it couldn't be done. Nobody said it couldn't be done. Yet here we are. I'm talking, of course, about that mainstay of middle-class aspiration that is the Alessi Juicy Salive Citrus Squeezer. Measuring in at 29 centimeters high with a price tag of 43 pounds. Are you kidding? This three-pronged fruit smasher is such a striking piece of design that it's even been included in the Museum of Modern Art. Picasso, Duchamp, a lessy juicy salive citrus squeezer. And of course, as we've now come to expect from tripod technology, what better way to show the cutting edge of the technology than with an appliance that doesn't really work? I mean, it's not been made to be put on uneven ground, so it's not like it's getting the benefit of a ding or the Delft tripod. Um, also, I don't think it's meant to create its own gate, but hey, it looks looks kind of fun, right? Looks a bit like a, a bit like a spaceship, and that's all. That's all right, isn't it? isn't it? 43 pounds for a juicer! It's been described as design over functionality. You have to put a container which has got about a 15 centimeter gap underneath the actual bit where the juice comes from, so there's gonna be like loads of splashback from the juice bits. There's a reason they call it a lemon squeezer rather than a juicer, because you're not getting a lot of juice from this bad boy. But you are getting to squeeze a lemon, 
which I, I don't know if squeezing a lemon is important in cooking. What you are getting, though, is a conversation starter with topics like why on earth did you buy that? And how much money are you making? And please come and leave your home. So there you have it. A brief history of the tripod in subject. Can you think of any more? Of course you can. Higher than many houses, striding over the young pine trees and smashing them aside in its career. A walking engine of glittering metal, striding now across the heather. Articulate ropes of steel dangling from it and the clattering tumult of its passage mingling with the riot of the thunder. A flash, and it came out vividly, heeling over one way with two feet in the air, to vanish and reappear almost instantly as it seemed. With the next flash, a hundred yards nearer. Can you imagine a milking stool tilted and bowled violently along the ground? That was the impression those instant flashes gave. But instead of a milking stool, imagine it a great body of machinery on a tripod stand. Can you imagine a milking stool? Well, think of that and then imagine something entirely different. And that's kind of like what it is. Something in, uh, completely different than the, than the milking stool movement. I don't, I'm sorry, I'm stressed. I don't know why I... I don't know why I why I decided to use that as the um as the the, the description there. I'm go, I've got a lot going on. Then suddenly the trees and the pine wood ahead of me were parted, as brittle reeds are parted by a man thrusting through them. They were snapped off and driven headlong, and a second huge tripod appeared, rushing as it seemed headlong towards me. Mamma mia! We've got double trouble here. Two tripods coming right up there and I was galloping hard to meet it. At the sight of the second monster, my nerve went altogether. Not stopping to look again, I wrenched the horse's head hard round to the right, and in another moment, the dog cart had heeled over upon the horse. The shaft smashed noisily, and I was flung sideways and fell heavily into a shallow pool of water. Right, okay, mate, so uh, we've got a Martian attack. You know, you've seen a lot of things you weren't expecting already, so uh, be ready for that. Like you said before, you are excited for war, so uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what your strategy is here. So can you can you talk us through what you're thinking as you're about to see any Martians possible? Yeah, 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 sure. Right, so Martians attack. What's my plan? That's right, I'm going to flip my car as soon as possible and fall out into a small, shallow pool of water. Perfect, mate. Sounds great. Okay, let's see how this pans out. I crawled out almost immediately and crouched my feet still in the water, under a clump of furs. The horse lay motionless, his neck was broken, poor brute, and by the lightning flashes I saw the black bulk of the overturned dog cart and the silhouette of the wheel still spinning slowly. In another moment the colossal mechanism went striding by me and passed uphill towards Pyrethon. Okay, so if we go back to the map, let's take a look. So. Pyreford, from where he is, is like sort of northwest, so it's as if they're going either towards uh, towards Horsel Common to meet up with the other Martians, or no, to the Bifleet Golf Links. Somebody help them! Seen nearer, the thing was incredibly strange, for it was no mere insensate machine driving on its way. Machine it was, with a ringing of metallic pace and long flexible, glittering tentacles, one of which gripped a young pine tree, swinging and rattling about its strange body. 
got these glittering tentacles. It's got a little bit of a swagger on it. it. It's got a young pine tree. Sounds like it's about to go on a night out. And, I mean, as we all know, it was Friday yesterday. Bloody hell, somebody's going to have ruined their Sunday. One leg is bad, one leg is bad, yeah, one leg is bad, one leg is bad, yeah, one leg is bad, one leg is bad, yeah, one leg is bad, one leg is bad, yeah, one leg is bad, one leg is bad, yeah, one leg is bad, one leg is bad, yeah, one leg is bad, one leg is bad, yeah, one leg is bad, one leg is bad, yeah, one leg its road as it went striding along, and the brazen hood that surmounted it moved to and fro with the inevitable suggestion of a head looking about. Behind the main body was a huge mass of white metal, like a gigantic fisherman's basket, and puffs of green smoke squirted out from the joints of the limbs as the monster swept by me, and in an instant it was gone. So much I saw then, all vaguely for the flickering of the lightning in blinding highlights and dense black shadows. And as it passed, it set up an exultant, deafening howl that drowned the thunder. And in another minute, it was with its companion, half a mile away, stooping over something in the field. I have no doubt this thing in the field was a third of the ten cylinders they had fired at us from Mars. For some minutes, I lay there in the rain and darkness watching. By the intermittent light, these monstrous beings of metal moving about in the distance over the hedge tops. A thin hail was now beginning. As it came and went, their figures grew misty and then flashed into clearness again. Now and then came a gap in the lightning, and the night swallowed them up. 
I was soaked with hail above and puddle water below. It was some time before my blank astonishment would let me struggle up the bank to a drier position, or think at all of my imminent peril. Not far from me was a little one-roomed squatter's hut of wood, surrounded by a patch of potato garden. I struggled to my feet at last, and, crouching and making use of every chance of cover, I made a run for this. I hammered at the door, but I could not make any people hear, if there were any people inside. And after a time I desisted, and availing myself of a ditch for the greatest part of the way, succeeded in crawling, unobserved by these monstrous machines, into the pine woods beyond Maybury. Under the cover of this I pushed on, wet and shivering now, towards my own house. Why are you going home? That is closer to the Martians than you are right now. What are you doing? I walked among the trees trying to find the footpath. It was very dark indeed in the wood, for the lightning was now becoming infrequent, and the hail, which was pouring down in a torrent, fell in columns through the gaps in the heavy foliage. If I had fully realised the meaning of all the things I had seen, I should have immediately worked my way round through Byfleet to Street Cobham, and so gone back to rejoin my wife at Leatherhead. But that night, the strangeness of things about me, and my physical wretchedness, prevented me. For I was bruised, weary, wet to the skin, deafened and blinded by the storm. Thank you for explaining your terrible life decision! I had a vague idea of going on to my own house, and that was as much motive as I had. I staggered through the trees, fell into a ditch and bruised my knees against a plank. Who just leaves a plank lying around? Who are these people? I'm glad the Martians are coming and finally splashed out into the lane that ran down from the College Arms. I say splashed, for the storm water was sweeping the sand down the hill in a muddy torrent. There in the darkness, a man blundered into me and sent me reeling back. Uh, the law of Wells is that uh, regardless of where you are, what is going on in a scene, you will always bump into some idiot who will try and knock you over. He gave a cry of terror, sprang sideways and rushed on before I could gather my wits sufficiently to speak to him. So uh, when I read this bit, uh, I thought, oh, this will be a great opportunity to get a really big name in for this. Um, I pulled in a lot of favours uh, from, from some of my personal comedy friends, and I was really excited that I actually got Helen Mirren to play this role. I know, I know. And then it turned out that I didn't have any, have any lines for it. So um, uh, she, she was sort of just sitting there with Bexy whilst we were recording the episode. Um, so sorry, sorry about that. So heavy was the stress of the storm just at this place that I had the hardest task to win my way up the hill. I went close up to the fence on the left and worked my way along its palings. Oh god, don't tell me any palings explaining. Ugh, grody to the max, what are you, some sort of dingus? Palings, they're just like gates, aren't they? It's like a sort of fence. Anyway, I'm gonna go smoke cigarettes behind the school on a weekend, even though I'm not meant to be at school. Near the top I stumbled upon something soft, and, by a flash of lightning, saw between my feet a heap of black broadcloth and a pair of boots. Before I could distinguish clearly how the man lay, the flicker of light had passed. I stood over him waiting for the next flash. When it came, I saw it was a sturdy man, cheaply but not shabbily dressed. His head was bent under his body, and he lay crumpled up close to the fence as though he had been flung violently against it, overcoming the repugnance natural to one who has never before touched a dead body. 
I stooped and turned him over to feel for his heart. He was quite dead. <gasps> How dead is he, Doctor? He's quite dead. Apparently, his neck had been broken. Oh, what, with his head bent under his body, you think that his neck was broken? Ah, oh, way to go, Sherlock. The lightning flashed for a third time, and his face leaped upon me. I sprang to my feet. It was the landlord of the spotted dog, whose conveyance I had taken. Uh, you know, in a way, it's actually kind of lucky, because uh, you just knackered the dog cart, so, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's all right. I stepped over him gingerly and pushed on up the hill. I made my way by the police station and the college arms towards my own house. Nothing was burning on the hillside, though from the common there still came a red glare and a rolling tumult of ruddy smoke beating up against the drenching hail. So far as I could see by the flashes, the houses about me were almost uninjured. By the college arms a dark heap lay in the road. Down the road towards Maybury Bridge there were voices and the sound of feet, but I had not the courage to shout or go to them. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm surprised you didn't bump into him, to be fair, in the darkness. But it's like, oh, the narrator, an opportunity to talk to people. Yeah, pull the other one, mate. I let myself in with my latchkey, closed, locked, and bolted the door, staggered to the foot of the staircase, and sat down. Yeah, that absolutely sounds like the action of someone who wanted to communicate with people. Oh, oh I was too nervous, but I am going to lock every single door and window. My imagination was full of those striding metallic monsters, and of the dead bodies smashed against the fence. I crouched at the foot of the staircase with my back to the wall, shivering violently. And there you have it, the ending as most of the chapter endings do, with the narrator curled up in a ball, shivering at the bottom of his staircase, locking all of his doors, lest he interact with any humans. You know, if I didn't know any better, I'd say that this Martian invasion was the perfect excuse for him to try and really draw back from society even more than he already had. After the excitement of chapters like The Fighting Begins, In the Storm, what on earth could the next chapter be called? Well, get ready, cause uh, here it is. At the window. At the window. I'm sure there'll be more than just him looking out of his window. Um, definitely, definitely. Or will there? Well, guys, there's only one way to find out, and that is to brace yourself and get ready for the next episode of Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds. So, in the meantime, why don't you why don't you say tell me how you're enjoying it? Give the give the podcast a rating and a review. You can do that on on anything other than Spotify, apparently, as far as podcasts go. You can follow me on Twitter at Eddie Hurst, on Facebook, Eddie Hurst. Uh, you can even see my website, eddiehurst.co.uk. Go on Instagram, send me an email, eddiehurst at gmail.com if you are so inclined. Have a lovely two weeks, and I will see you next time for chapter 11. At the window. Eddie Hurst podcast version of The War of the Worlds is written and created. Eddie Hurst podcast version of The War of the Worlds is created and produced by Eddie Hurst, written by H.G. Wells and Eddie Hurst. Research this week, thanks to a lot of people on, on the social medias, actually, who have been helping out in the conversation for the tripod research, also TV Tropes and the Institute of Electronics and Electrical Engineering. See you in a couple of weeks. Bye!